Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Well, today I am very honored to have as my special guest Susan Hopps, registered nurse, bereavement specialist who deals with parents who have suffered miscarriage, ectopic pregnancy, stillbirth, early infant death. Susan is a bereaved parent of Nicholas, a twin who died of congenital heart disease. Susan has also had multiple pregnancy losses. She comes to us from Los Angeles, California. Welcome, Susan. Thank you, Gloria. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you on Healing the Grieving Heart. Uh, could you tell, share with our audience uh, the story of some of your losses? Sure. Uh, about uh, nine years ago, we were expecting twins, um, our fourth and fifth children, and we were thoroughly excited and anticipating these little, little babies coming into our lives. And although they were a little early, they were born at 36 weeks, we were all home and doing well within a couple of days of their delivery. And they were seen several times during the first two weeks just because they were a little small. And at the two-week well baby checkup, um, Nicholas, um, one of our babies, presented with a heart murmur. And we found ourselves the next day at a cardiologist's office and the following day at a neonatal intensive care unit where they had determined that Nicholas had a very complex congenital heart defect that was going to require surgery. And we were then uh, sent to a children's hospital in Los Angeles, and uh, he underwent surgery when he was 22 days old. And uh, everything seemed to have gone fine. We were uh, sent home late that night. Uh, we, we needed to come home to our, our older children, our little, our little twin, Ryan, who is our survivor. And um, we got the phone call at about 1 in the morning saying that Nicholas had taken a turn for the worse, and mm. they were asking us to get there as soon as possible. And by the time we had gotten there, he had had a massive heart attack, and they had uh, attempted CPR, but they were not able to revive him. And so we lost him at 23 days, and we had the complex task of coming home and and telling our children that... Um, now, was, how old are your other home. children at that time? Uh, at that time, they were 12, 8, 4, and then our newborn, Ryan. Ah. And so that was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do is to tell those little kids who had had him home for two weeks that he was not going to be coming home with us. And... Um, and then in addition, with a, with a twin, you have this complex of task of of trying to maintain your happiness about this new little mm-hmm. life that you have, yet you have just left a baby who may have identically looked like this little baby in the hospital and, and knew you were going to bury him. And so Ryan's infancy was interesting, to say the least. Um, now, were you breastfeeding at the time? I was, yeah. Yeah, and I would I imagine had, that would be really tougher. I had been breastfeeding every two to three hours for you know, two weeks, two babies. Mm-hmm. Two babies. Two babies. And um, as we talked to our pediatrician in the in the following weeks, just at regular well baby checkups for Ryan, I asked them, what do you find that people who successfully cope with a loss of a child do? Because we were just beside ourselves. Mm-hmm. And she said, hands down, the people who cope the best are the people who attend support groups or go uh, get really quality grief counseling. And so I... Um, I attended three different support groups, just one time each, and, and uh, two of them were really pretty bad experiences because I felt that um, that people knowing that I still had a baby. Now, how far were you at at this time? I was, oh, let's see. 
maybe four or five months okay. before I actually attended a support group. But having a surviving baby, people right. just assumed you have everything that I wanted. You have a baby. But they didn't realize that we'd lost just the same thing they did. It's just that we had a surviving twin. And so sometimes it's a little isolating to have that surviving multiple if you've lost mm-hmm. one of them because people, it's, it's the same thing um, when people say, well, you have surviving children. This must must not be as bad for you. And, and, and plus he was he was young, right? Very young, yeah. Yeah, so they feel that way too. Oh, you didn't right, really. Exactly. Right, and, you know, people do the at least when you have lost an infant or a, or a, a baby during pregnancy. At least you didn't bring him home or at least he wasn't alive or at least you didn't bond, which is, you know, none of those things are true. And if you start with the, the words at least, you're minimizing someone's loss and that that should never be your starting point when you're uh-huh. trying to uh, console somebody. And so basically with the loss of Nicholas, we... Um, waited a few years before we decided whether or not we were going to try again. And then, uh, to make a long story short, we did attempt to have another baby. And in uh, 18 months, we lost um, five more babies. Um, oh, my goodness. You had five miscarriages. I had four miscarriages. One was uh, a set of twins. Uh, we made it quite far along, 18 weeks, 14 weeks, 12, and 12 weeks. And so surviving three first trimesters and then to suddenly be told that I really should not try again because it was affecting my health. I ended up um, being diagnosed with antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, which is an immunological problem that um, causes microclots, and so they would uh, get lodged in the placentas, and then the babies wouldn't have nourishment and would just die. Uh-huh. And so, um, and it's a it's a very underdiagnosed problem. And and the problem with pregnancy loss is most insurance companies and doctors won't even treat women until they've had three consecutive losses, which makes it very difficult. Um, now, um, how did the other children deal with Ryan's death? Um, I mean, excuse me, Ryan's the one that's living. I'm sorry, Nicholas's death. You know, I think our four-year-old did the very best. You know, he was the one who was cheering us up most of the time. He would he would say, you know, I know Nicholas is happy where he is, and and he was our little our little shining star. I think the 12-year-old and 8-year-old really had a hard time. They're they're girls, and they were helping me feed these little boys around the clock. You know, and so it was very difficult for them. Mm-hmm. They, I, I think um, the 12-year-old probably had the worst uh, and time of it. You know, she she was kind of like a second mother to these little twins for two weeks, and and it was just devastating on them. They, they I, I think we all had some depression and, and just really had a rough time. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, how did your husband deal with this? You know, we we dealt so differently. I, I remember actually just getting very angry at him and accusing him of not grieving at one point <laughs> because he was trying to be stoic and he was trying to fix things, which in my reading I realized that that's a very um, male reaction to having lost a child or a baby. But, um, you know, he he became kind of the stoic one. And um, even though he was a little more inward in his grief, I know he grieved. And I, and I, I think that um, he's used the death of Nicholas just to become a really compassionate person. He you know, reaches out to people in many ways that I think maybe he, he may not have learned to do had this not happened. 
Uh, yeah. Um, now th- you went to two groups, and then you went to the Compassionate Friends. I went Friends. to the Compassionate Friends, and I I received a great deal of validation from those leaders, and they had a wonderful library, and that's another coping mechanism that I used. I almost compulsively read everything I could about the loss of a baby or, or or grief in general, and that was so very validating to talk to other people and to read things that other people had written, knowing that what I was feeling was normal and what I was experiencing was were normal thoughts and normal reactions. It was very validating and encouraging to know that people actually lived through this, were able to come and lead a group or write a book or do something productive in their lives. Because initially, you know, I, I would wake up and think, why is the sun shining and why is the world continuing when I feel like this? Mm-hmm. So, and, and now you, you're a nurse, right? Were you a nurse then? I was not. Um, I was due um, three weeks after I was to have graduated in a registered nurse program. And so Nicholas died the night I was to have graduated because he was born a little early. I ended up having to go back and make up my final exams and two clinical days, <laughs> four months my after he died. Uh, but I did eventually get it done. And uh, I'm now a, a registered nurse. I work primarily in labor and delivery. I'm cross-trained to the NICU. And... Um, and uh, because of uh, my experiences, I, I take uh, great care in caring for the moms that come into us with with losses. And we have a, a wonderful training program that we go through that helps us know how to uh, properly help women who are and families who are losing a baby in a hospital. I wanted to let our listening audience know, for those who don't know, what an ectopic pregnancy is. Certainly, an ectopic pregnancy is one where the ovum or developing embryo implants outside of the uterus, and it's usually in the fallopian tubes. And so you have all of the pregnancy symptoms, um, uh, but your baby is growing where it shouldn't be. And so as it starts to grow, it starts to cause you pain, and it can um, rupture the tube or wherever it's growing, and you eventually have to have um, the developing baby removed. And um, so it's it's sometimes considered kind of an unsupported loss. Um, and it can be very painful. Very quite painful. dangerous. Oh, quite. Women can die of this. They can bleed to death. And so um, it it's it and and then you know you're you're kind of left with an early pregnancy loss. But um, people often you know don't understand that the baby had to be removed to save your life. It, it's it's very complex. Uh, let me read you an email that I received uh, regarding this topic. Uh, Mary uh, from Spokane, Washington, writes to me, Dear Dr. Horsley, I saw you were going to deal with ectopic pregnancy on your show, and I wanted to thank you for including this with the loss of a child. I am 40 and not married. I was shocked and surprised to find out last year that I was pregnant. At first, I was not happy, and then I adjusted to the idea and was frankly thrilled. I even started telling people. A few days later, I started having pain and was rushed to the hospital where I had surgery to end the pregnancy. My friends thought it was no big deal, but I feel sad and confused. I'd appreciate your thoughts. I want to thank Mary for emailing us on this important issue. Absolutely. Do you have any thoughts about that, Susan? Yes. You know, sometimes when um, you have a loss that's a little ambiguous, you know, you're feeling, you know, am I happy I'm pregnant, am I not? And often we, we do that as we find that we're pregnant. It makes things very complex once we have lost that baby that we we eventually resolved to the, you know, to a, that we we were happy about, and in addition, if you haven't, if you have friends that are not supportive, it, it is very isolating um, to to have a loss with an ectopic pregnancy because they're having to remove the baby. Um, that that can also produce some guilt, but 
but it's something that has to be done to save your life. And, yeah, and there can be confusion and also issues about whether you can get pregnant again. Exactly. Oftentimes you lose that fallopian tube where the baby implanted. So, yeah. And with Mary being 40, I'm sure that's a, a big concern for her. Yes, yes. And, you know, in the support group that we have, it seems like we have an extraordinary amount of women who have uh, infertility issues on top of loss. Now, is this support group at the hospital? Uh, it's actually the Compassionate Friends. Um, eventually, down the road, we developed a subgroup to our local Compassionate Friends chapter that is specific for people who have had pregnancy and infant losses, just because some of our issues are different. And, um, and we meet uh, in an adjacent room. Uh, some chapters throughout the country uh, do have this luxury of having two separate groups. And uh, we we have uh, gotten so large that we now have just established a second site and meeting time in the Los Angeles Basin because so many people are traveling a good two hours to attend our meeting because there's really nothing like it that's specific for people who have had losses similar to ours. Mm-hmm. And that's great. And really the only uh, thing that it takes for a group like that to start is a person who's willing to do it. Absolutely. Uh, the Compassionate Friends chapters are set up already all over the country, and all it takes is approaching the leadership and saying, this is my situation. What would you think about allowing me to have a subgroup and we would meet in a, a, a same room on a different night or and that's what I did I approached our local leadership and said um, this is what I'd like to do and they were very gracious and and have just um, wholeheartedly welcomed us into the chapter and and it's been a, a really great experience in fact the people who have attended our group over the last four years almost hands down say the things that have helped the most are talking to other people who have had similar losses Mm-hmm. Could you talk just a little bit about um, this um, people who are trying to get pregnant now uh, with in vitro and uh, oh, that kind absolutely. of thing? Absolutely. In vitro, um, often people have tried for years and years and years to do other things because in vitro is invasive and it costs many thousands of dollars each time you do it, and it's often not covered by insurance. It's like 20000 Oh, it's, it's huge. So people have, you know, their life savings are placed on this one procedure that hopefully will result in a baby. And then uh, many times uh, they're implanting several embryos in hopes that one will, will actually take, and uh, many multiple uh, birth pregnancies are a result of, of this. But with multiple birth pregnancies, there's inherent risk. That uh, I've, The statistics I've read are 3 to 15 times greater risk of um, having a loss if you have a multiple birth. And mm-hmm. so uh, there are so many people who have lost twins, triplets, just because, you know, our bodies don't really do well with that many babies often growing at the same time. And so I have just a multi- multitude of people who come in who have lost multiples uh, because of um, in vitro uh, pregnancies, and it's just devastating. And most of these women are in their late 30s, early 40s, and they've been trying for years to have a family, and this was their only only chance, and it's just very sad. Yeah. So I think, Susan, what we want to tell our audience here is you have the right to grieve. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, oftentimes I think in the past women were told, forget that it happened, you're young, you can have another baby, just, you know, and and it just doesn't work well that way. If you don't really acknowledge that this was a loss, it just comes back to to haunt you. Um, in this uh, result through sharing 
uh, training that I went through, which is pretty much the gold standard that people can go through in order to learn how to help people who are losing children in a hospital setting. Um, they said that uh, with early losses, about 75% of people consider it the loss of a child, but about 25% consider an early pregnancy loss just part of life, and they're able to just um, move on and not really let it um, make much of an impact on their lives. And so that's another complicating issue. If you've got some people who really do, uh, who are able just to say, well, this is life, this happens frequently, and move on, it makes it very difficult for those people who who really feel it very strongly. And um, if, you know, the 2005 fact sheet from the Compassionate Friends actually states that um, there are 900,000 early pregnancy losses a year in this country alone. And so it's, it's a huge amount of people right. who are suffering through this. And people have the right to grieve it or Absolutely. not grieve it. Absolutely. You know, there, there can also be an expectation that we should all be really grieving a miscarriage oh, exactly. maybe when some people don't. Right. They and really if, don't need to. Right. And if there's one thing I've learned in the last nine years is you've got to allow people to grieve the way that they, they feel that is most beneficial to themselves. Now, I also wanted to ask you, it comes up here, I, I know some people want to see their, pro- I guess, do, would you call them products of conception if they're yes. very early? That's, yes, uh, and that's perfectly legitimate. Um, if, in, in my opinion, uh, if you can see things, you have this this um, tangible, or if you can hold your baby, you've got this tangible evidence that this really happened because, uh, you know, you're in denial anyway, and if you can actually have some mementos from the hospital, little pictures, ultrasound pictures, anything that you can actually tangibly hold that can sink in the reality of the situation to you, I think you're much better off because you can then move on and uh, really work through your grief rather than just deny that this actually happened. You can actually see anything that the hospital removes, correct? Exactly. You can. You can request to see anything the hospital removes. But I think you would have to request it particularly. Yes, you would have to request it before they uh, perform the procedures that they are required. I wanted to talk a little bit about stillbirth and also... Yep, let's start with stillbirth, and I want to talk about SIDS uh, a little later on, probably after break, because I think it's got some special issues with it. But how about stillbirth? Sure, it's estimated that about 27,000 stillbirths occur in um, this country alone each year. Can you tell our audience what a stillbirth is? Certainly, it's a baby who's born between uh, 20 weeks and term, 40 weeks, who is not born breathing, is not born alive. And so basically the baby has died inside of the mother and then they discover this and she has to deliver a um, baby who's not alive. And it can be some, she can know for a while. Absolutely. She can know for quite a while. Sometimes they'll have a woman wait um, and have, you know, natural process process take over or you'll be induced um, and, and have to deliver a baby knowing that your baby is going to be born dead. Mm-hmm. There are some women who have uh, conceived um, multiples and they will find out um, at some point that one baby is dead and they have to continue the pregnancy in hopes of saving the survivor. Now, how do you handle that with uh, the stillbirth? Do you give the baby to the mother on the delivery table, the dad's there? How, do, how is that handled? You know, we give the mother the choice because some women absolutely do not want to even see the baby. Most women want to see, hold, some of them will help us bathe the baby, dress the baby. And I think the women who become active and actually embrace the experience do so much better. I've never heard anyone regret that they held and saw their baby, but I've heard many people say, I so regret that I wasn't uh, 
made aware that I have the right to see and hold my baby and However, take pictures. For, for those folks who are listening to us right now, if you did not hold your baby, if you did not see your baby, again, we have to remember that we do the best with what we Absolutely. can at the time. Absolutely, yeah. And you need to forgive yourself, forgive the hospital or whatever, whatever right. the circumstances whatever the circumstances were that it wasn't possibility. That's that's what you what you have, yeah. Mm-hmm. I wanted to read part of an email that was sent to me from Kathy from Brownsville, Texas. Uh, Kathy writes, I hear all of your programs and really enjoy them. They help me so much. In response to our show on a son killed by terrorists with Phil Bunicor, Kathy wanted to say that she found the American consulate helpful when her daughter, Michelle, was hit and killed by a taxi while crossing the street in Mexico. In her email, Kathy also says, thank you so much for your show. I live in a small town in Texas, and there are no compassionate friends groups here. So I listened to all the archived shows, and uh, I wanted to tell Kathy I'm sorry, very sorry. We already hear about your loss, and we're glad that you're able to hear our archived shows. And I wanted to remind our listening audience that they can listen to all of the shows, this one and past shows on the uh, Compassionate Friends uh, Network, Compassionate Friends website. Um, um, Susan Hawks is my guest today, and we're talking about pregnancy loss and death of a child in early infancy. Susan, um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit. We were talking about stillbirth, and I wanted mm-hmm. to talk to you about Sid's death. Uh, could you talk to our audience about what that is, the Sid's death, and uh, and some of the issues? Certainly, Sid's is an acronym for sudden infant death syndrome, and, and it used to be called crib death. And basically, these babies, uh, for some unknown reason, just stop breathing, and they really don't understand what is causing this. There are many theories. But basically, SIDS means that they have ruled out a whole bunch of other things, like asphyxiation and, and whatnot. And so if they can't determine what really happened and a baby has just suddenly died, then they rule it a SIDS death. And so it's it's uh, not very comforting to parents because they really don't know what happened. And um, it's um, the number one uh cause of death of, of early infancy. And um, it's just devastating. It's it's a sudden loss. Uh, you, you suddenly find that your baby's in, in bed and not breathing, and it, it's it's just just thoroughly devastating. Uh, it's also devastating because it's treated as a crime scene. Sometimes you're not allowed to see or hold your child as you call the authorities because they have to rule out uh, uh, involvement of, um, uh, you know, problems with some um, family members, and it's, it's just horrifying. And difficult to be interviewed about how it happened. Oh, exactly. And, and, um, every first event. And right. First responders are often not trained to be sensitive um, because they're, they're looking at it uh, suspiciously as they're trained to do so, but um, it, it's very hard on the parents. In addition, they've lost their child and they're under suspicion for a while. And so they need a lot of support. Now, do you have people Absolutely. with SIDS death in your group? We do. We have several that have attended and, and um you know, all of the situations are just devastating, but it's just, just heart-wrenching. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about Compassionate Friends is that you do have people who've had involvement with the police for different reasons, mm-hmm. and they can also support them in understanding, you know, how difficult it is to, to have to be interviewed and all that kind of thing. Exactly, and the interesting thing about our group is we'll we'll talk as a group, and then 
will uh, close and break off, and people will stay for an additional hour or so sometimes, and they'll they'll gravitate to the people who have had losses very similar to their own, and they will make lunch dates and, and uh, outside of our group, and it's just wonderful to see the friendships that have developed because sometimes having lost a baby, you lose friendships. You lose those people that were not supportive or said uh, unkind things, but um, you also gain some friendships and support in the people that you find that have had similar situations. Right. Uh, well, we have a call now uh, from Stacy from California. Stacy, hi. Hi. How are Welcome you? Welcome to the show. Thank you. Did you have a question for me or Susan or uh, a comment? You know what? I'm having some computer difficulties this morning, so my frustration is that I can't hear everything that's going on. Actually, but um, but our daughter died eight years ago, and she was two years old. So although she was a little bit older than some of the infant losses that you've been talking about. Um, it's it's a similar feeling of not maybe getting as much acknowledgement um, from the loss sometimes. Um, it, anyway, I, I like I said, I didn't hear it all, so uh-huh, <laughs> I uh-huh. can't contribute too much. And, and uh, you're involved with Compassionate Friends, I know. Yes, we are. We, uh, My husband and I co-lead the group in Woodland Hills, California. Great. Dan, do you have a, a group for um, uh, younger kids? You're not in the same uh, Compassionate Friends group. No, we're in a different group Susan. Um, as Susan, yes. Um, you have, I, for younger kids, meaning for the siblings? Or yeah, for, no, 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 for parents who have lost uh, miscarriages or, you know, Susan has a group, group for people who have had early losses. Right, we do not. Uh, we have grandparents um, that come and some siblings, but we have separate groups. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, well, thank you for calling in, Stacy. Sounds like we've uh, Stacy's off now, and uh, I know that um, Stacy and other leaders throughout the Los Angeles basin are really wonderful to refer people to our group who have lost uh, babies in pregnancy or infancy, um, because they know that we we do have that kind of support. And so, um, if, if people, we've, we've done a good job of canvassing the community to make sure that people know that we're here throughout the Compassionate Friends organization as well. Mm-hmm. Now, do you have any rituals or anything that you recommend to people? You know, there are things, um, oftentimes when you lose a baby, you don't, they, if, if in very early pregnancy, you may not even uh, have the baby cremated, it may be just be, uh, you know, if you've had a procedure, it, it just may not be something that you have a place to go to memorial, memorialize your child. You don't have a grave site. And there are uh, places that Oh, that's you can an go. interesting thought. Yeah. There are places in various hospitals. Uh, for instance, Pomona Valley Hospital in Los Angeles has a memorial wall for babies and children who whose parents want to have their baby's name etched in a, a granite uh, memorial. It's within a little garden, and they have a yearly uh, memorial service. And you have a place to go and put flowers if you don't actually have a, a grave site. Or, mm-hmm. and, it, and it's very important, I think, to have little rituals like that where you just take some time to, um, to remember your experience. In addition, yes. some, some What a lovely way to put it, uh, a way to remember your experience. 
sometimes you know I, I was just thinking that I know that some uh, some people like to be a little more active about mm-hmm. you know and do something uh, scholarships and all that kind of thing oh, and certainly. maybe getting your local hospital working with them on doing a memorial garden or a wall or something would be a wonderful contribution to the community absolutely and there are people in our group who, who have um, there's there's one woman in particular who's a high school teacher and she's um, she's uh, established a scholarship in her high school in the name of her little boy uh, for someone who's going into the field of um, uh, the medical field in helping children, and so there are lots of opportunities that are really healing that people can uh, can become involved in to proactively memorialize your child. Also, naming your child is very important. Sometimes people will say, "Oh, don't waste a name. The baby isn't alive." But I think using that name that you had chosen for that baby, or if you haven't chosen one, I think that's very very beneficial to that really now, did you when you had how many miscarriages did you have I had four and the first little baby we lost it was at 18 weeks and okay. we ended up delivering him and we named him Andrew the other four I was on such a marathon of needing to have a baby before that next due date was up that um, I didn't name those babies until after I got to the point where I decided that we're not going to do this again. And so at that point, I had five babies that I didn't name. And at that point, I didn't know, or four babies we didn't name. I didn't know if they were boys or girls. Uh-huh. So I went to a website for ambigendrous baby names, and I uh-huh. chose four names. <laughs> and it was very therapeutic to have just acknowledged that they were little individuals. And had they been, had they lived, they would have been loved, and they needed a name. And so I didn't do that until later, but I was very glad that I did. Would you like to give us their names? Sure. Those those ambigenders. You can give us all of their names, all of <laughs> sure. your children's names. Oh, certainly. Well, my my uh, my living children are Aaron, Melissa, Ryan, and Christopher, and my babies are Nicholas, Logan, Daryl, uh, Cameron, and uh, Hunter. Ah, uh, thank you so much. <laughs> we love them all. Yes. <laughs> uh, we've got a caller right now, Tom from Massachusetts. Tom. Hi, uh, Gloria. This is Tom Laughlin, uh, the police chief in Milford, Massachusetts. Oh, great. Thanks so much for calling in, Tom. Did you have a thought or uh, a question or anything for for us? Just, I, I, you know, as you know, my involvement in training police officers, and I, and I know that a number of callers have uh, spoken about the interactions with uh, the police, and uh, I guess from my perspective, I'm hopeful that uh, people will see changes uh you know, with in dealing with law enforcement officers uh, in years to come. Uh huh. Now, Tom, can you tell us about your loss? I know my son Michael uh, died to SIDS in 1992. Um, he was three and a half months old, and he's my second of three boys. Um, at that time, I became involved with the uh, police training in Massachusetts, and we it's now a mandatory course in our police academy. There's a four-hour session that deals with uh, investigation of infant uh, and child death and how to work with families. Great. I think it's so wonderful that you're doing this work, Tom, and it's it's really wonderful. Do you write about it or um, have a website, or are you able to help other police departments besides yours? We, we work closely with the uh, Massachusetts SID Center, um, but the there are promotional materials that have been uh, disseminated by the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Uh, people can feel free to contact me uh, at the uh, Milford, Massachusetts Police Department, and I'd be more than happy to uh, point them in the right direction. Do you want to give us a web address? Um, they can reach me. Uh, email? Uh, email's easy. It's milfordchief at aol.com, and 
uh, I can send information out uh, to anyone that's interested in police training around the issues of uh, infant and uh, child death. Great. Thank you, Tom. Thanks a lot for calling in, and uh, I really appreciate it. You know, uh, some of the things are that um, other than reading and talking to other parents who have had similar experiences, uh, the Internet is just a fabulous uh, way to gain support. There are chat rooms. There are uh, different sites that are specific to different kinds of losses, infertility, loss of a a multiple, um, and there are just lots of opportunities to talk to other people if you can't actually find a support group in your community or or create one of your own. Um, There are lots of ways to just um, try to help yourself in in learning about what other people have done that have been successful in in coping with this kind of a tragedy. And what about uh, husbands? Husbands. Yeah, we we have many husbands that come uh, to our group, or and I should say partners, because partners, it doesn't necessarily exactly. have to be a husband. Exactly, uh, and um, they are so glad to have another uh, partner to talk to. They, you know, because we have such differing issues sometimes as men and women that um, these dads who come and talk are so glad to talk to other people. Um, in fact, on our Compassionate Friends website, there's a, a men's chat. Because I was just going to ask you, is there a men's chat? Yeah. There is, and, and people can talk uh, to other men, and um, sometimes you just, and we sometimes do that in our groups in general. We'll split into men and women, and men will go to the right, women to the left, and we'll have, we'll be able to just a li- be a little bit more open about um, things that we may not want to share in front of um, our spouses. Mm-hmm. And one thing nice about the Internet, particularly that I like about the archive shows, um, of healing the grieving heart is because sometimes you aren't able to sleep at night and you're wandering around uh, exactly. uh, worried and, and uh, you can go on the Internet. That's very common, listen. especially in, in the early part of, of bereavement, to just really have problems sleeping. And, and I found myself doing that, going to different sites and, and there are wonderful poems. There's actually a site where you can light a virtual candle for your baby and that's another way to do something that if you don't have a gravesite you can do something you can post your little baby's name and picture on a on a website and have that as some kind of a, a memorial that can be really a tangible healing thing to do great well we've got another uh caller steve parker from la hi steve hi gloria how are you good how are you we appreciate your calling in did you have I... a question or a thought for susan or i Yes, I did. Um, actually, I have you on live, and you're a little behind. Oh, you bet. Yeah, you have to turn it <laughs> off or turn the sound down or something. <laughs> there we go. I'm sorry. Yeah, um, okay. I'm just listening to some of the things that Susan was talking about, and I, too, lead a group from Compassionate Friends, and uh, uh, Susan and I work together, uh, and my wife, Stacy on the 2004 conference, mm-hmm. and I guess where that all ties together is what you're talking about now, which is just doing whatever you can for yourself. And uh, I think uh, the early infant loss as a, as a group leader and someone who lost a toddler, I don't think uh, I really experienced some of the things that the people that are in Susan's position, but it does have the common denominator of the loss of a child, which whether they were, you know, an infant or or a two-year-old, a 20-year-old, you still have this huge loss and the loss of a dream and going to uh, the point that she was making on finding ways to help yourself. And there's a certain uh, there's a certain ability that parents who have been in that situation before helping others. 
and uh, it's it's not always the only thing, but it sure does help to talk to someone who's been there in some capacity, and uh, also in, in in the memorial type of thing. Some people run to that. Some people just hearing about what other people are doing is can be very healing. Um, certainly, most of the people that we come in contact with are early on in their grief and just don't know which way to go or what to do or or even how to get out of bed. So right, uh, right. Uh, and the idea that uh, it, kind of the theme of our show is we've been there, and you can make it because we have, you know. And that that in and of itself can be very healing, but it's also with uh, the, the specific group that you're talking about right now is, is extremely tough uh, uh, and, and certainly needs a, a good place and a better focus. And, and I know Susan is working hard on that, and, uh, because there's a little different, even though we've all lost a child, but when you lose, uh, there is some uh, misconception that there's a different or a lesser loss with uh, uh, an infant or uh, a stillborn. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the truth is it's the loss of a dream. And right. whether that dream ended at 2 or 6 or 20 or 40 or 60, we still have future dreams for our children. And... Uh, and it's it's equally as devastating, and then certainly having a special place for that is uh, is is uh, very now, important. Now, what about a guy thing? I know that, as you said, that you, um, I guess, Stacy hasn't had any miscarriages, but I'm wondering and and um, about the woman actually carrying the baby and feeling it in her body and losing it. Do you think that that it's the same impact for the male? Well, I would say, actually, um, between the loss of our first daughter, Alyssa, who died at two, and the birth of our, uh, our, our next daughter, uh, Gabrielle, who is now currently six and healthy and wonderful, thank God, um, we did have a miscarriage. And oh, those days, okay. so, so to answer that question more specifically, yeah. I would believe, as, as a man in a miscarriage, I don't believe it. I, I, I believe there's impact. There was impact for me. I don't know if it just because... You know, we lost a, a daughter, you know, a year and a half prior. So I don't know if that had more impact on me as a male, but absolutely I've got to believe that a woman has to have a bigger issue or or the person who is carrying the baby. Um, but I think a lot of it is emotional. And if, if a man becomes emotionally attached to the idea that they're going to have a baby, mm-hmm. um, you, you still suffer the death of that dream because... The moment you think you're having a baby, you're already thinking about what is it going to look like and, and will it be a boy or a girl and we'll, what college are we going to send it to and where are they going to get married. And, you know, I, I think women do that more than men. But I think, you know, you know, where am I going to put him in Little League? Will he play Pop right. Warner football? Would he prefer soccer? You know, whatever, wherever our dreams as a child or as an adult thinking back on our childhood and, um, I think there's a loss to men in answer to your question, but I think I think it's got to be more significant to the to the mom because it's physical. Yeah, yeah. Well, in some ways, maybe she gets the attention though, uh, if she, if there is any, <laughs> uh, and the man doesn't get a whole lot. To I would imagine there's some of that too. I think that as a man in the grieving process, we have uh, you know as, as a group leader, obviously we see a, far more women than we do men, and. A lot of men come kicking and screaming, present company included, uh, to support their wife, and it's it's very important because society doesn't allow you know a you know a macho man to to grieve. It's not you know crying and all that kind of stuff, and it's it's something that happens. And uh, 
I think that uh, as a man, we we have we we tend to bury it, but we have a lot of the same feelings. We just yeah. you know it's it's not considered okay. So when you come to a group or when you meet with another man who has been there and understands that you can be walking into a business meeting wanting to fall apart, mm-hmm. you know that's it's kind of almost it's kind okay of hard to, if you're yeah, a woman. It's kind of hard to fall apart over a. Um, and miscarriage or an ectopic pregnancy, too. People were right. like, oh, well. Mm. Susan, do you, have you so, got any thoughts about that? Or? In, in, uh, in addition to, you know, having carried the baby and maybe felt movement, you've got maternal hormones that are just wreaking havoc on a, on a bereaved uh, parent who has lost a baby. And so, yeah. and so that's another aspect that, yeah. that I think Well, it's time important. for us to close the show today, and I wanted to thank you, uh, Steve, for calling in. And I want to thank my special guest, Susan Hawks. Uh, you have been absolutely fantastic, and I know that you are helping people so much with your own experiences. And thank you so much for being on the show, Susan. Oh, thank you, Gloria, for the opportunity. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.